first welcome. Um, I'm glad that you're here. You braved the elements here to be here in person. Those of you guys online, we still love you, but that's okay. No, definitely. We are glad that you're here and chosen to worship with us um, today, or if you're online, um, maybe a day in the future, you're working away with that kind of thing too. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you, I um, just want to welcome you personally and um, and glad that you've chosen to, to be here with us. Are, are you all awake, by the way? Everybody wake, like, a couple days of rain doesn't get you, like, like sleepy, it's like nap time, like 24-hour, you know, it's like I can take a nap anytime. Anyway, I hope you're awake today, because um, our time together is um, going to get in God's Word today. And, um, and, and so um, we're in this series that we started, this is the third kind of installment, we do things in kind of series, a book of the Bible, or a certain theme, or, or, or that kind of thing, and we're, the, the series is called The Bachelorette, so surprise, surprise, um, we are redeeming The Bachelorette story of redemption, but we're looking at the story of Ruth. We're unpacking the story of Ruth in the Old Testament scriptures, which is a story thousands of years old, penned about 1,000 BC, um, finally written down for us. Um, but today's um, kind of episode, we're in episode three of our series of six, and um, I wanna, it's going to be about tables. That's kind of the, the title if you have in your worship guide. There's notes there, too, to follow along if you're a note-taking type, but the title is Table Blessing, Table Blessing. So we're going to talk about tables, and especially look at a story, um, a part of Ruth's story that involves a table. But, but I thought it would be good to first kind of just get, get you all warmed up a little bit. Are you ready? You ready for this? Okay. So we're going to warm up a little bit with, can you guess the table? Can you guess the table? We're going to have some pictures we're going to put up on the screen, and I want you to shout out if you know the show that this table comes from. Bonus points if you know the episode that it comes from, Okay. Y'all ready for this? Some of y'all are like, I have no idea. I'm just giving up right now. But ready, set, go. Okay, let's put that first one up there, Nate. Do you know what show this is? Just yell it out. Friends. Okay, friends. There's no specific episode. There's no no necessarily people. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going here. Famous tables. Okay, what about this next one? The Office. Anybody know the episode? The dinner party. Thank you. Yes. Good one. Yes, the dinner party episode. Anyway, the most awkward dinner party that you can ever imagine. If you've ever experienced that, maybe you can connect there. Okay, what about the next one? Okay, Seinfeld. Anybody know the episode? Festivus. So Festivus, the celebration, the made-up celebration before Christmas. Everybody's gathered around the table, and I think we have another one. Let's go. Okay, Stranger Things, this is from season one, when we have Eleven, she's brought in by, the, you know, together, she has like these magical powers, and he kind of rescues her from, uh, from that, so, um, and then we, I think we have one more, everybody know this table? That's my house, yes, good, ding, 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 yeah, that's my table, so I don't know if your table has a story behind it. Um, maybe it does. I was actually just talking, I think, with, with Pam back there um, about some tables that she has, and sometimes we have like you know connections. Maybe they're passed down um, to you. But my table is from my grandma, um, and um, and my parents saved it for me until I got like my first apartment and that kind of thing. And and um, and I just uh, you know every time I like sit at that table, I can think of like the you know how 
she once sat, and she's passed away to be with the Lord, but, um, but the times that she probably sat at that table and welcomed people over or drank her coffee or did her, she liked to do like crossword puzzles at the table. And, um, and it just, it carries with it lots of, of good memories and, and, and things just that I'm just very thankful for that I can experience right now in my own home. Um, and, and I think that's true, right? That some of our most memorable moments take place around tables. Maybe you can think right now of, of a time, maybe even a, a holy moment that you experience, maybe, maybe God's grace or God's presence around a table. And, and what happens around tables, um, it, it shapes the lives of those that are gathered around it. Um, but of course, life gets busy, right? That, that for many of us, um, our table really becomes kind of an underutilized source. And I'm guilty of this, you know, that in the, the, the clutter of busy and busyness of life, um, my table sometimes, that beautiful table, gets stuff, like, gets stuck, like stacked on it. And they're organized piles, if you will, you know, that, that I know where everything is in them. But, but it becomes it used for a purpose that, that it really wasn't designed necessarily for. And I think that, that kind of parallels like, the use of tables overall in our lives um, and even just the purpose of gathering around it. Um, studies show, statistics show, that um, over 50, per, 50 to 60% of people, um, and this goes in our community as well as in others, um, eat every meal alone. Let that sink in. 50 to 60% of our community, people eat every meal alone around a table, you know. Um, and, and when we do, when those of us do eat a meal around a table with others, um, the duration of that meal is as in the 12 to 17 minutes. That's the time that we spend around the table. Years ago, it was double that. Um, and I think it's, it's important to say, though, that we lose something when the table is missing from our lives. Because t- tables, they speak of home even when you're far away from it. You know, you know this. Maybe you moved away for a season of your life, or maybe you're still there. And when you're welcome to somebody's table, you experience a sense of home. It, it speaks of family even when you're not related by blood to the people that are gathered around that table, that you feel welcome and a part of something more. Um, it, a table kind of when you're sharing and people passing food and telling stories, it, it speaks of the way that things should be, even when the rest of life is not. There, there's something important, and whether you're a religious person or not, you probably agree on that, that there's something powerful around the table. And I think it, it's a symbol of our deep desire really to be known and be loved to be known and be loved. And, and, and even more importantly, it's a symbol that, that those of us that, that follow Christ, that, that are following God, um, it's a symbol that we see throughout Scripture. We see throughout Scripture as a place where God dwells and where God restores us and replenishes us physically, but even more than that, spiritually. And it's a place that, that he replenishes and restores and redeems that which was lost even a part of our lives today, uh, it really shows the character of God, that God is inviting you and me into his family. That's the story of relationship, of, of salvation, being justified or made right with God by faith. Guess what? You get adopted into God's family, and a great symbol of that is the table. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there just being invited and being a part of God's family the, the extension of that, the challenge to that, is for you to do the same thing. 
for you to do the same thing, for the one that was not seated to invite and call and be a part. And what's, what's really intriguing is that, that a table, a table is at the center of Ruth chapter 2 in the story of Ruth, in the book of Ruth. And, and what's interesting is a lot of times if you're reading the book of Ruth, and I encourage you to do so, it's a very short book, really. You could, you could breeze through this part, and a lot of times we do. We just kind of breeze through what's going on. But, but this story here today we're looking at is a big deal. It's a big deal, and, and we're going to explore the, the importance of that, kind of the mystery as to why it's a big deal. And so in this story, the, the, the story of the bachelorette, really the central theme here, which we're doing with the title, by the way, is redemption or redeeming. But it's important to ask that question, though, what does it mean to redeem? Like a lot of times in, in church circles, like we'll throw around that, that word, we just sang about it, right? But to redeem is to deliver or to buy back, to restore to an original intent. It's to, yes, deliver, you know, in a sense of, of our faith in Christ, to be delivered from our sins, to be delivered from our brokenness. But there's that other important part of being restored to the original intent that you were created for that we were created for, to be a part of what God intended from the very, very beginning. And so also, though, it's important for us to, to not just see this as a story, but it's a story that we are also a part of. I hope that you would see yourself in the story of Ruth, yourself, that you can identify with where Ruth has been, where Naomi has been, where Boaz is going, with all these different things and people, but also that God never appears in the book of Ruth, ever. God never does a miracle. God never speaks. There's no prophetic words. There's no burning bushes. There's no parting seas. There's nothing. God never is a part of the story, but he really is because God is behind the scenes. God is behind the scenes. So, so we're going to catch up in, the, in Ruth chapter 2, um, but, but what's happened so far, if you haven't been with us or just you need a little refresher, I always do, but basically the story is that, that Ruth, Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite woman. She's a Moabite woman, and, and there's this family that moves from the little town of Bethlehem. Think about that. This is thousands of years before Jesus. They move from Bethlehem during a famine to this land of Moab where God had said, do not go, do not be a part of, and yet they do it anyway. And the two boys named, named, remember? Sick and tired, yes. Thank you. That's really what their names mean, sick and tired. You want to think about that? You know, you're having some children or grandchildren. Sick and tired. They marry Moabite women. But guess what happens? The father, Elimelech, and the two boys, they pass away, and they leave these three women, and one goes back to her family, but the other travels with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, to start over. And last week, we talked about how they were homeless, they had nothing, they had no resources, they were poor. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you found that lost and broken and, and that place in your life. But then Ruth, Ruth, in order to sustain her and her mother-in-law, she begins to glean leftovers from a field. They basically pick up leftovers that the, the people are told that they could go behind the harvesters and pick up what was left in order to sustain widows and orphans and the poor. And Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, says it like this. And as it happened, say as it happened, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Let that settle in a relative of her father-in-law. So there's something on the horizon here. As it happened, maybe you have an as it happened moment. You stumbled upon. You're like, now you look back and you saw the hand of God at work. You didn't necessarily see it at the time. But as it happened, the air is charged with possibilities. 
that there's somebody here that's related to her father-in-law. There's somebody here that maybe perhaps could restore and redeem the situation, the situation of loss, the situation of, of being poor and homeless. And, and so what happens? Well, guess what happens? Like you and I experience, lunchtime happens. <laughs> lunchtime happens. And that's where this table scene appears. The table appears. So Ruth chapter 2, moving ahead in verse 14, tells us, at mealtime, this is lunchtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. So let me just pause there. Boaz had, as it happened, appeared on the scene while Ruth is out there behind the harvesters, taking what's left over, and he asks, like, who is this, and that kind of thing. But he points out, he says, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. And I think this part of the story shows the table of redemption, how redemption works for us, but also how it is illustrated in the story. And the first part of being redeemed and restored and delivered is first to come to the table, to come to the table. See, the one thing we would usually breeze over in this part, the listeners to this story, especially a thousand years before Jesus, they would have like scoffed at this story. They'd be like, really? What? What's going on here? You know why? Because Hebrew men never, ever in a million years would have associated with a foreign woman. Ever. They wouldn't associate with a foreign man, let alone a woman. This was the craziest thing. They would have been like, what? What is he doing? He's a, he's a, a well-to-do business owner here. Why is he? Why on earth? And, and just think about this. At this time in history, uh, most political and, and ethnic and socioeconomic groups of the time would never be seen at one another's table. They would never eat or dwell with one another. That table fellowship with them was culturally taboo. Why would they be, sink down to the level of the poor and you're a business owner and you're supposed to be in charge? And not only that, but she's a woman, Right? Like, what are they? They're, they're just there, right? To produce children. That's all you're supposed to do, right? That there was always a ranking at the time. But he dares to do that. He dares to go to her and say, come, invites her. Come to the table. But then the secondly, what, what's even more crazy is this. The verse continues. When he, she sat down with the harvesters, with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. Imagine how hungry she was. But, but this is also something that we would just often breeze over. This is also crazy because in a patriarchal society, a man never not just invites a woman, but serves a woman. He's serving her. He offered grain to her. Like that, in, in a family situation at the time, a man would not even serve his wife or his daughter. He wouldn't be caught dead doing that. And yet he's doing this to an outsider, a stranger. And who does he invite her to sit with? His harvesters, his employees, his servants. And we find out that he's, he's a bachelor. He doesn't have a family of his own. And so these are the people who are like family to him. And he invites her in the midst of that. He asks her, basically what he's asking her and what he's serving her, he's asking her to sit around his family table and share a meal with him. Wow, that's a powerful thing. It's something that, that Ruth has not experienced in a long, long, long time. And so in that, Boaz is doing something to reflect redemption. 
basically, he's turning, this, turning back, turning to ground zero for turning as it was intended by God in the beginning and starting with the invitation to sit shoulder to shoulder around the table and to enjoy a meal together. Think about it, a meal, food. Food is the equalizer among all of humanity. It doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or if you live on the streets. We all need food. And when we sit together, it's an equalizer. It's a place, it's a ground zero for how God intends it to be. And it starts with the invitation. That's what it starts with, for you and I too. To, to be redeemed, it starts with God's invitation to us, come let me serve you. Let me be a part of you. Come. But you have to come. You have to choose to come. And, and we see, though, you do have to ask the question about Boaz, right? Is he in his right mind, first of all? Like, is he crazy? Like, he's going to be looked down upon. He, you know, what are people going to think? Uh, why on earth did this man decide to do this with this Moabite outsider woman? It's a good question to ask. But when we recognize Boaz's background, we see the reason why. Why? Well, Boaz's mom. Let's look back at her story. Who was his mother? Well, we fast forward to the Gospels. We see that she's actually included in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to share the whole genealogy because, you know, there's lots and lots of names there. But it goes like this. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, underline this, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know who Rahab was? You know, she had a nickname. Rahab had a, had a nickname. It wasn't such a nice nickname. She was called Rahab the harlot. She was the Rahab the harlot. And guess where she was from? Jericho. She was an outsider. She was an outsider to the Hebrew people. Draw, draw these parallels. So Boaz's own mother and family, where he came from, his roots were outsiders who were then actually rescued and saved the Israelites, saved them, the whole story in there about what happened there, but winds up saving the people of God in order to deliver the people of God. She's welcomed into the story, and she's welcomed into the family of God as the outsider. So imagine, Boaz knew that story. He lived that story. He, he must have seen, too, how people treated his mom. He must have seen how he was and his family was adopted and welcomed into the family of God. He remembered what it was like to be an outsider. Do you remember what it's like to be an outsider? Have you ever been an outsider? Have you ever been in a place you were knew you were not welcome or that you were on the edges? And maybe, maybe just maybe at some point somebody welcomed you? And what a relief that was, what a joy that was. Do you remember? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Don't forget it. Don't forget it. It's a gift. Don't forget what it's like to be an outsider, to feel left out, to be on the sidelines. Don't ever forget it. It's a gift, and it's meant to be used for someone else. That's what Boaz does. See, it was in Boaz's blood that, that he, when he rose up, became a businessman, owned all these fields, that it was in his blood to make an outsider feel like an insider and extend the invitation. When we get too high up, when we get too close with the people we know and, and our friends, and this can go in church very well, is that we become insider-focused just for us. But it's important not to forget what it was like to be new, not what it's like to forget to be on the edges or the margins, not what it's like to be on the outside. And that's what Boaz does. And, and we're told in the scripture that, that what does he do? He, he 
first serves her, and what does he serve her? He serves her this like grain cake, grain cake, because you might be like, well, what are they actually eating, right? And then he says, well, dip it in the, the wine vinegar. So it's kind of like a strong drink turned sour. That really sounds awful, you know, not something you would bring to your lunch. But it's more like a salad dressing. But, but he includes her. And what does he tell her to do? He says, take the bread and dip it into the wine. What is that reflection of? This is, once again, thousands of years before Jesus. Take the bread, dip it into the wine. Sharing. Sharing the cup that we will do at the end of our service. Sharing the cup as Jesus did. That's the way of God's people. It's a symbol of restoring relationship. That you are welcome here. You are a part of us. And the first step is to come to the table. To come to the table. Not being forced. You don't have to come to the table if you don't want to. But you're invited to come to the table. To sit down with everybody else. And admit your hunger. Admit your need. Sit down with outsiders to know because you are one. Don't forget it. Open your table. Open our tables. You know, and I think it's a good question for us. Like, do we open our tables? Do you open your table? Do you open yourself or do you always go to the safe place or the people that you know? Or you know, maybe you're in a, in a gathering of some sort and you, know, you notice that somebody's on the outside. Like, do you make it a point maybe to go up to them, to invite them? You know, I know several people here that have a knack for inviting people that they see by themselves. Hey, come and sit with me. That's an amazing thing. It's a simple thing, but it can matter so much. Come to the table. But then the story continues. As she got up to glean, so lunchtime is over, this little turning point around the table. As she got up to glean, Boaz, he stayed with his guys and he gave orders to his men. He said, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. And so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley she had gathered and amount to an ephah. We're going to get to what is an ephah, right? We're going to get to that. But, but the second part of redemption is, is to come to the table, but then it's to receive from the table. To receive from the table. Uh, you notice that, that she goes back to work. They remain seated at the table, and, and Boaz is like, okay, guys, just let her be. He's going to give it a little warning here. Does he recognize that she's not from Bethlehem? She don't know the laws of the land about where you should go, especially if you're, like, gleaning behind the people and stuff. And he tells them, like, just let her go. It's okay. Don't insult her. But also, what does he say? Leave the good stuff. Like, pull out the good stuff. Don't just leave the leftovers on there. But actually pull out some good stuff and lay it on the ground. Like, that's grace. That's grace right there. She didn't deserve it. She didn't deserve any of it. But it was because of grace that he extended the blessing to receive. See, Ruth, just like you and me, she's not aware that Boaz is at work to make her life better. We're not aware that God is at work behind the scenes. See, at the end of the day, you know, don't, isn't it common? I do this all the time. But at the end of the day, don't you, like, make a mental list of all the things that went wrong, right? Especially if it's been one of those days, like the no good, horrible, very bad day that, you know, you had the dead car battery. There was an argument that took place. That the phone was ringing off the hook. You got nothing done. Like, we can get there. And we can be closed off in that. But, but what if instead we, we thought of the things that went right instead, you know, because I think just like Ruth, sometimes, sometimes you got to glean the blessing. You got to glean. You got to go through stuff to glean the blessing from it. See, to glean doesn't mean that the field is full and you just go through picking. Glean means that you noticed what's left on the ground that somebody else didn't even see. 
that you wouldn't even see if you didn't decide to glean, to receive. In order to receive the blessing, sometimes you've got to glean it. And that's why the foreigners, the foreigners and the orphans and the widows, they could see stuff. They could see stuff that the people who were there every day harvesting could not see. They saw the value in what was left behind. You know, we have to ask ourselves, like, are we good at gleaning to receive? Are we good at gleaning or are we good at grumbling? <laughs> I don't know. Like, if, if you sent out a recruiter to find the gold medal grumbler in your family, is that you? <laughs> are, you know, are you, or are you good at gleaning, but you're really good at gleaning and things to be anxious about, what's going to happen in seven years, what's, uh, you know, do you glean insecurities like a boss, right? Do you glean in a dumpster rather in the field? You know, but Ruth, Ruth imagine that she both grieved and gleaned at the same time. It's possible to do both. To grieve what's been lost, what she's lost. Imagine, she's just, she's lost her husband. She's lost her, her father-in-law. She's lost her home, her way of life. And at the same time, she goes and gleans. There's something still left to receive. There's something still left to receive, but we have to be willing to do that, to receive. That's, that's God's grace, because truthfully, doesn't receiving make you uncomfortable sometimes? Like, I don't know about you, I like to be the helper, I like to, like, give and, like, bless people and all, but when it comes to receiving, like, even, like, prayer, like, oh, gosh, i got to ask somebody, like, pray for me. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Like, I'm a pastor. Like, you know, I'm supposed to be strong and doing it for everybody else. That, that receiving can really make you uncomfortable. Um, I remember a time when um, I was uh, in Virginia serving at a church down there, and our, our church had this, this little group of people. Um, they were um, of Indian descent. Some had just immigrated from India. Others had um, been in the States a long time. And, um, and they had this little house church in this one guy's apartment. And um, it was uh, a crazy, amazing thing. And, and so I, as the pastor, um, they were having this little house church to like, connect with their neighbors that, that would you know, come and, and meet with them. And I was invited to come and to share a word from the Lord with their little, little house church. You know, and I'm thinking, like, okay, I'm going to, like, you know, I think I brought chips or something, right? I'm like, we're going to have some food with it. And they're like, it's going to be great. I remember, like, sitting down. And all of a sudden, before you know it, there was, like, this, like, it was, like, a two-bedroom apartment, like, the kitchen and the living room, all just one big area. And we sat down, and my worship leader was there, too. They asked him to play a couple songs. And, and this room, just this whole apartment just, like, Build up. There must be like 50 people, like like probably illegal, like at the fire marshal had like come into this place. The cars are outside, and all there's children running around, and and then all of a sudden we're like praying, and we're absolutely like singing, and it was just absolutely crazy. I have to say, the food, oh my lord, was amazing. It was like eight courses. And my chips, like, of course, like, sound, they're like, thank you for bringing the chips. They're like, you know, you don't bring the chips to this. But this was amazing. And it lasted three hours. And I have to say, it made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what's next? When do you want me to say something? Like, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, I just I needed to relax and to receive it, to receive the blessing. Instead of thinking like, oh, my gosh, it was what I'm saying. Is that going to go with what he just sang and what we're going? I just need to receive to receive, and that's what Boaz, Boaz leaves this for Ruth, this blessing that she, she has to glean the blessing, but it's there. And imagine how much that she picked up there. He told, we're told that Ruth takes home an ephah, an ephah, of course, like I said, means nothing to us. But if you look it up and you search the word ephah in, Bible, in the Bible, um, it actually appears again in 1 Samuel 17, 17, in the story of where David fought Goliath. 
And so the day before he, fought, he fights Goliath, he goes down to his brothers, his little, little David, and he goes, and he, dad sent him to his brothers to deliver what? Lunch. And guess what he brings with him? An ephah of grain. Imagine that. He brings an ephah of grain. It's actually 30 to 50 pounds. An ephah of grain, you know, probably carried, I think we have a picture of what, how she would have carried this. It was a very, very heavy thing. On your head, right? That's an ephah of grain. And imagine, this is day one. She was not an experienced laborer. It was just after the threshing. And the good news is that Ruth had 30 pounds of barley to take home. The bad news, Ruth had 30 pounds of barley to take home. So then we see what happens. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. Let's just pause there because I think the other part, piece of redemption that we miss often, we are good at coming to the table and receiving, but then there's a part of sharing. Sharing, receiving what you have received from the table. See, the table is not just for hallmark moments, for your memory bank. It's not just for you. See, the mother-in-law, Naomi, she is in absolute shock and awe at the amount of grain that Ruth had brought home to share. She wondered where she was, what happened, and, and Ruth identifies as Boaz, and ding, 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 ding. Notice the trickle effect that this has on Naomi. We are told all the way back in chapter 1, beginning, when Naomi loses her husband, she renames herself, that her, her name before was pleasant or sweet. That's what Naomi means. And she renamed herself Mara, which means bitter. Well, we see a change, a restoration to the pleasant and sweet that she's excited because when Ruth received, what she received is contagious. It's contagious that what Ruth has received, it restores Naomi to back to her sweet and her pleasant about who she is meant to be. See, the table transforms us. See, blessing others, it's not just a to-do list, but it comes from the inside out. That It's meant to change us and transform us to pass it on to others. Uh, there, there was a story back um, in May of 2011, um, a story of a young man uh, named Nadav ben Yuda, And he, you probably, I don't know if you've heard of him before, but this was a story back then. Um, he was actually an Israeli, and he was the, about 22 years old and going to be the youngest Israeli to ever summit Mount Everest. And he was on his way up on his hike, and he was just maybe a couple hours away from summiting Mount Everest, something that very few people do. And as he was walking, he noticed a man in the snow. And he saw that this man didn't have gloves on. He saw this man was, was suffering. He was, he was out like a light. And others before him had passed by this man in the snow. And this man was none other than a Turkish man named Ayadin. Ayadin. And Adav when he passed this man, he had a choice on what to do, whether he should keep walking to his summit like everybody else was doing, or whether he should stop and rescue this man who's probably going to die of exposure. And what did he do? He stopped. And not only stopped, but he, Nadav carried Ayadin down the mountain for nine hours that day. And he also experienced, personally, frostbite. He lost permanent sensation in his left hand from doing so. 
And, and in the recovery camp where, they, when he, where he had brought, um, you know, it was also worthy to note that Israel and Turkey have had very harsh relations over the years. So he knew that this guy was Turkish. So when they were in that recovery area, in the, in the tents trying to get better, people surrounded him and they asked Nadav, why did you relinquish your dreams of getting to the summit? You were going to be a world record holder. Didn't you know that? And Nadav responded, because we had shared a meal together. We had shared a meal together. Earlier at base camp, the two had actually sat across from one another. We have a picture of what that was. They sat across from each other at a community table and talked. And they shared their stories and their families. They began to talk about their upbringings and their struggles about how their countries hated one another. See, the power of the table is that its power does not stay at the table. It allowed this man's life to be changed and rescued and transformed. See, when we look at Ruth's story, we, we, we go, going back and kind of wrapping this up, we see that this chapter, this part ends, that we see Naomi make these claims about a he in the story. And she says this, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And we have to pause there because the he is very elusive. It's intentionally ambiguous. Who is the he? Is it Boaz or is it God? Is it Boaz or is it God? And I think the answer to that question is, it's both. It's both. Because isn't it true that there are some people who show you what God is like, who give you a taste of what God is like? You know, I know that there's a group in this church, they're called the Chat and Chew group. Um, they are the 55 and better group that meets once a month. And, um, and I, I have to say, they give me a taste of what God is like because they make sure I never go home without a dessert, an abundance of dessert. <laughs> But, but think about that. Isn't it true that there's some people, maybe you're one of them, that can show others what God is like to give a taste of God, that, that you can't help but share an impact to others. And it makes a difference when you've received from God about what you share. Because then she added, that she added, Naomi, these are the key words here. She added, that man, Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Whoa, guess what? Turning point here. It starts to make sense to Naomi what God is doing. This is like the aha moment because she knows how real estate in Israel works, that, that God provided that each tribe of Israel would have a part of the promised land. It wasn't to be sold outside the tribe. So what happened when somebody who owned the land died? Somebody else in the family would have to buy the land back to redeem it. The Redeemer is called a Goel, and the Redeemer was somebody in the family that had to keep what was, what was supposed to be theirs. And the name of kinsman Redeemer, that's that relative. It's a male relative who can buy back the land so you don't lose it when that person dies. But even more so, that he would also be financially responsible for the widow and her family. He could marry her if it sees fit and pass on the family name. See, Naomi, she knows for her it's past her time, but she's thinking of Ruth. See, what begins when you happen to share? It restores hope. It restores that there's another chapter in the story. And there's a cultural assumption, I think, for many of us that voting and lobbying and writing books and posting on social media is the most effective means by which we make the world a better place. But what if it simply starts at tables? What if it's simply at tables? Don't underestimate the redeeming power of the table. Don't underestimate it. The redeeming power, there's no sin too great for grace, no brokenness too broken for God's healing, no relationship beyond God's restoration, and no future out of God's hands. So what does that mean for you? What would it look like for you to come to the table, 
to accept the invitation of grace fully and completely from God, to be set free of guilt and shame, to receive the gift and abundance that God has for you, even if you have to begin gleaning it, what would it look like to share it with Naomi in your life, to extend an invitation? What would that look like? Well, I have a guess. Watch this.